the message time with a story uh, about an experience I had in the Coast Guard. We were 100 miles offshore, and we encountered this sailboat that was just out there adrift. It was three people sailing from Hawaii to Seattle, and they got stuck in these doldrums for about four or five days, just drifting, no wind. Uh, the sky was too dark to charge up their solar panels, so they couldn't use their electronics. And when we finally found them, if you recall, the thing that they were most interested in was our presence. They just wanted to talk to somebody different than the three of them. They wanted relationship. So we talked about how after Jesus ascended, it's the fancy way of saying he went up to be with the Father, the disciples probably kind of felt adrift like those people on the sailboat. Like they, their whole world had been taken from them. What do we do now? What do we do now that we can't see Jesus? We can't touch Jesus? So... I made the point that actually we all probably feel that way from time to time. I know I do, kind of getting my bearings. Where is Jesus in this mess or in this thing? Thankfully, Jesus prepared us and his disciples for this very issue. He wrote, or he spoke, and John wrote chapters 14 through 17 in John's Gospel, and they're primarily about preparing us for when Jesus goes up to the Father. Last week's message was kind of an overview. We read how Jesus was going to the Father to prepare a place in his, father house, in his Father's house and how that metaphor of the Father's house has two implications. It has a future implication to where someday we're going to have space in the Father's house. We'll be with Him forever. And we also talked about how the Father's house is another way of saying God's presence because it's similar to the same thing as the temple. The temple is where God's presence dwells, right? So is a future thing and a now thing, that God's presence is with us now. And His presence is with us in the Holy Spirit. Now Jesus said there's one way to cash in, if you will, on this presence now and the presence in the future. He said there's only one way. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And that's great news. Because it means that the way isn't what I can do, or the strength I can muster up, or having good directions in a GPS. The way is Jesus. He's taking care of it. I don't have to trust in my own abilities. And man, I wish Jesus was the way to win softball games. Because then my lack of performance, that shortstop on Friday, would not have mattered. But alas, we were swiftly defeated. Twice. Okay. <laughs> so let's, we're going to be talking about God's presence. Um, and the thing I wanted to touch back on with the sailboat couple, or threesome, um, is that after they hung out with us, in fact we played cards with them and just talked with them for a little while. But then finally we gave them fuel, we charged up their batteries, gave them some food, and they wanted to finish the journey on their own. They didn't want to tow back. So we sent them off on their way. Let's find out what God's presence might mean for us because it's way more than just a warm, fuzzy feeling. Would you stand as we read the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 12 through 24. This is Jesus speaking. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. 
Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. And that is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not know him, or uh, does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you, and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And after a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me, because I live. You will live also. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and will disclose myself to him. Now Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come and make our abode with him, will come and dwell with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Holy Spirit of the living God, help us not only to grasp this text best we can, but to have the courage to live it out. Amen. You may be seated. So, did you catch that? The part about he who believes in me will do the works that I do and greater works than these? It's crazy, right? I mean, that, that is a heavy statement. It's inconceivable that we could do the same works as Jesus, let alone greater works. How's that going to happen? What does that even look like? I guess if we're going to understand what greater works are, let's look at a few of the works of Jesus first, just to kind of see what we're up against here. First of all, Jesus glorifies the Father. He came and took on flesh, and He represented the Father. He represented the Father's character and purposes and creativity. He represented and displayed God's love so that the world might know Him as He really is. You know, the first sentence in the Lord's Prayer is, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. That, that really means, may the world know your character as it really is. That's exactly what Jesus was doing, not just praying. The, and some of the other works Jesus did was get the word out that he is the way to salvation, to eternal life. Get the word out that... That life can begin now for everyone who trusts in Jesus. He got the word out by telling them. He got the word out by including outsiders, by loving people, by doing crazy things, signs and wonders, calming storms and multiplying food and raising dead people and other associated God stuff. He did these things to proclaim that He is the Savior. So we're supposed to do that and greater things? Hold on. 
Now don't, don't check out yet, Tommy. Just stay with me a minute. Stay with me. This is not like it seems. The key... The key is in one little end of the sentence. And this is where grammar is your friend. If you didn't like grammar, I didn't really like it until I got into biblical studies. And now, the dependent clause is our friend today, friends. Because all of that stuff about us doing what Jesus did and greater things are dependent on one ending of the sentence. Because I go to the Father. Because I go to the Father. Listen. Because Jesus went to the Father, that means three things. Cross, Jesus went to the cross, He went to the Father through the cross, and that took care of our sin problem. Alright, that's good. We have a sin problem. Somehow, somehow the cross makes us able to live in right relationship with God. That's very simplistic. There's lots of other ways to explain that. But somehow the cross makes you and I right before God, okay? After the cross, Jesus is resurrected. He defeated death. Check this out. Daryl Johnson says something. Man, I wish I could have his one-liners. Listen to this. He didn't just do something about evil. He did something to evil. Okay? When he died and then was resurrected, he didn't just do something about evil. He did something to evil. See, death no longer has the final word. It used to, before the resurrection. It no longer has the final word. Jesus doesn't just take care of the eternal consequences of our sin. But through the resurrection, He's changed the way the universe works. Evil does not have the final say. It's been defeated. And sure, it's still around and it's still nasty and it's still real. But the final outcome is good, good, good. For those who trust in Jesus. Because he went to the Father, cross, resurrection, and finally, ascension. Ascension means he went up and now is at the right hand of the Father. He's ruling. He's in control. If Jesus is ruling, that means evil is not ruling. So despite what we see from our limited perspective, Jesus is actually in control. He loves his church. He has authority over the smallest details of life and the ultimate outcome of history. So we're going to meet opposition. Some will even get killed. But that is not the final word. So because Jesus went to the Father, cross, resurrection, ascension, the actual world that you and I live in, is different than the world that Jesus ministered in. You ever thought about that? All the stuff that Jesus did, the signs, the wonders, the preaching, He did it before the cross, before resurrection, before ascension. So when Jesus tells His disciples to do greater things than He, He tells them that before the cross. Our work after the cross, and it can be greater because we can call people into a reality that didn't exist before. The signs and the works that Jesus did, they only pointed to a future reality. So now we can tell the world of the cross and people can come to know eternal life. Eternal life that wasn't even available before the cross. We can tell people about the resurrection and the hope of restored world because Jesus was resurrected. And just as important, if not more important... And telling people about this stuff is showing people the love of Christ. 
serving to make the world a better place. That's why at Lettered Streets we proclaim the gospel. We proclaim it with words. But also with our service to the neighborhood and city and state and world. We're engaged in those greater things. And throughout the, throughout the centuries, the church on the other side of the cross, on this side of the cross, has been engaged in world-changing things. Justice for the oppressed. Healthcare. Hospitals were thought up by the church. Education. Uh, the arts. And I was praying over your names last week. I couldn't help but think of all the greater deeds I see going on even right now. First of all, your vocations... The areas of work that you're involved with are life-changing. And then I was thinking about Frank Hodge and how he drops everything to help somebody in need. And Corey and Trevor Hodge who hold a fundraiser over the tragic death of a little girl. They turn that into something redeeming for people who have no homes. And make a fundraiser out of it. Chris Sanders and her daily work with children in need as a teacher. And then her annual visits to Africa that she pays for out of her own pocket. Charlie and Jenny adopting a beautiful daughter into your beautiful family. And then Tim and Karen who claim to be retired but continue to give and impact so many lives. And you've personally impacted me in the way that you're interacting with your grandkids right now. It's amazing. I'm writing that down for someday if I'm that fortunate. And then there's Wayne Youngquist and his passion to put Bibles in people's hands through his ministry at the Gideons and put the Bible in people's hearts through his ministry at the jail. And I could tell you story after story after story about every single person sitting here this evening. These works can be greater because they can affect whole systems and they can affect people to eternal life. But one story I just want to share briefly is to have Patrick McAvoy come up and just to share one story about his microfinance business, Totem Financeros, uh, down in Mexico. Um, and Patrick, I'm just going to have you use this mic and share a story of a changed life. Sure. So many um, you know we have a, a business, me and my wife down in Mexico, where we, uh, we give small loans to to people to groups of people who um, would never get a, a loan from a bank or anything like that and so uh, we have um, he just wanted me to share one story of one person who we've loaned to and uh, I don't know if we have a slide uh, her name is Carmen she is um, this is not an extraordinary story it's just one story it's just one person she uh, her husband would go every Monday into Mexico City and come home every Friday uh, he'd stay there the whole week, and uh, and while he was gone, she started um, going to the next town. She got a credit with us for two hundred dollars, and it was a six-month loan. And uh, she went to the next town down. She would buy ice cream a couple times a week, and she would bring it back, and then she'd sell it out in front of her house to people. And um, and after six months went by, she uh, got a $400 loan, which is another six-month loan, and she bought the freezer so that she'd only have to go once every two weeks to buy ice cream, and she could spend more time at home and more time uh, selling it. Um, 
And then her husband got laid off uh, from his job when the economy went downhill, and uh, he was most likely going to go to the United States. He didn't like the idea of coming home, and in fact, he didn't really like the idea of coming home and selling ice cream to kids. He thought that was a little bit degrading. But he came home, and he started working with her, and uh, after the next... um, the next cycle, we gave her a $600 loan, and she bought the equipment to make her own ice cream. So now she just makes it out of her home. And uh, I think this is too good to be true, but she says her next loan of $800, which will be the cap, uh, she's going to buy a cow and get her own milk. So we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. But her husband chose to stay home. Uh, you know, she, He very well could have gone to the United, come to the United States and, and worked illegally, but um, they're doing quite well. And uh, anyway, just one of the cool stories that yeah. we've been able to work with. Thanks, Patrick. You know, I I really like that story because you know there are there are I've I've met people who have prayed over folks and seen cancer taken away and withered limbs and multiplied food. That stuff still happens. So I'm not discounting that at all. But this is a story about a couple in our congregation who have a heart for changing systems. I mean, this is changing not only helping a lady sell some ice cream, but it's changing maybe a whole economic system in her house from systemic poverty to um, to s- sustainability. And I just think that that is one of those greater things or on the road to a greater thing. It doesn't have to always be this uh, amazing epiphany or light shining in and um, changing everything from zero to a hundred. Uh, it, it, it can be a process and it can start small and it can seem simple and it can be a greater thing because we're on this side of the cross for many of John's original audience the call for the student to become greater than the teacher uh, would have brought to mind uh, a certain Old Testament pair of prophets in fact Nikki just read about them there's the aged Elijah who is one of the most famous prophets in the Old Testament and uh, he's just done so many miracles, and he's the one who's on the, the top of the mountain and challenges the priests of Baal and 750 priests, and they can't get their God to light the fire. He pours water on his and just says one prayer, and God... Anyway, it's a great story. You've got to read it if you haven't. So Elijah's this well-known prophet who's done these amazing things in the power of, of God and the Holy Spirit. But if you read scripture, his apprentice Elisha actually did, there's more miracles recorded about Elisha than Elijah. Now, the reason I bring this up is because not only would John's audience maybe be thinking this, because most of them are Jewish... The reason I bring it up is because Elijah, when he's about ready to go to the Father, he says something to Elisha. Pretty much, ask anything. What what would you have of mine? What would you ask from me? It's just like what Jesus says, ask anything in my name and I'll do it. Elijah knew he was going away and he said, ask what I should do for you before I'm taken from you. To which Elisha replied, Please, let a double portion of your spirit be on me. We don't do any works, let alone greater works, without the power of the Holy Spirit. And now, with this Elijah and Elisha combo coming in, it's becoming a little more clear. Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper. 
that's going to be with you forever. And this helper is actually the Greek word paraclete. It sounds like some kind of shoe, but seriously, that's what it is, it's paraclete. And it's often translated, depending on what translation of the Bible you have, as comforter or helper, advocate, counselor. There really isn't one great English word to sum up everything that this paraclete is. And like King James Version, and I think NIV might use the the word comforter, um, that comes from... Old English, and it really doesn't do it justice. So I mean, when you, when I say comforter, what do you think of? I kind of think of a blanket, right? Or or like my daughter's lamb that she sleeps with. That's that's not the idea that the Holy Spirit is this uh, this blanket, right? The original meaning of the word comfort comes from two roots: the com, c o m means with, right? Uh, Latin root, and then you've got fort, which is like a fort, like fortitude. So the Holy Spirit, if it, it, this comforter role, is to be with fortitude, with strength. So the Spirit isn't one who just makes our boo-boos all better and gives us, he, he gives us strength to endure and fortitude to survive and to glorify God through difficult circumstances. But even that true meaning of comforter is limiting to the Holy Spirit. One way to understand the role of the Spirit is to look at Jesus. Here's why. Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another paraclete. If he's sending another paraclete, then who is the first? It's Jesus. Jesus is the first. So, here's some of the things that Jesus was in his ministry. He was an advocate. He defended the weak and he judged the corrupt. He was a counselor, not like a camp counselor. I mean, no offense, Ben, but he wasn't doing skits and things like that. And he wasn't like on the marriage ref, but he was like a legal counselor. He, he, he's interceding for his client, if you will. In fact, 1 John 2, 1 and 2 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The Spirit is also known as a helper or equipper. In the Gospel of Luke, for example, we see Jesus equip the disciples to do things like cast out demons and to heal the sick. The same ministry is carried out among the church in the book of Acts. Peter and John see a man begging for money who's crippled. They don't have any money. But in the name of Christ, they heal him. The power of the Holy Spirit. So we're called to greater deeds. But we're only able to do these things because Jesus went to the Father and sent the Spirit. Ask anything in my name and I'll do it. With reference to Elijah and Elisha, it seems Jesus is telling the disciples and telling us to ask for the Spirit. Let me ask you this. When is the last time you asked for more of the Spirit? Maybe you're just praying out here with me at 4.30. We did that, but that's cheating. When's the last time you asked for the Spirit? The Apostle Paul tells us to ask for the gifts of the Spirit. When's the last time you asked for more of the gifts of the Spirit? I'm right there with you. It's not part of my daily plan. It's going to become more daily. Because this is, this is a good wake-up call for us, church. Is um, We have a Father who wants to bless us and give us His presence in the, in the person of the Spirit. Not only to be a comfort to us, 
but to give us the equipping and the gifts we need to glorify Him and to reflect His kingdom and to put on His character. And it's okay to ask for that. In fact, we're told to ask for that. Ask me anything in my name and I'll do it. So, anything? Really? What else should we ask for? Okay, so let me just take us on a little road here. Last week we talked about Jesus going to the Father's house to prepare a place for us. We talked about that place being future and present, and there's a third meaning I didn't talk about, but I'm going to right now. In the Father's house, which is the temple, there were these little apartments in the temple. You know who lived in those apartments? The priests. The priests would take up residence. They would abide in the Father's house. Now, Jesus is telling his disciples, who were definitely not priests, I'm going to the Father's house to prepare a place for you. An abiding place, a dwelling place. He's going to call us into the priesthood of believers. 1 Peter 2.9 You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for He called you out of darkness into wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, and now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, but now you've received God's mercy. So one way to read Jesus going to prepare rooms for us in the Father's house is to see Him inviting us into this priesthood. And what do priests do? They stand in the gap between God and the world who is not looking for God. They intercede on behalf of those who have no voice or who believe they don't have a voice. Priests pray. Priests pray. And prayer is one of the main ministries of the church. It's one of the main ministries of the church. How can we do better works, greater works than Jesus? To pray to the one for whom nothing is impossible. Ask anything in my name and I'll do it. You know, there's many ways that this verse has been abused over the years. I'm just going to talk about two that really rub me wrong. First, is that some people have taken this statement to mean that if they ask for a Mercedes, God's going to give them a Mercedes. If they ask for a million dollars, God's going to give them a million dollars. You get the picture. No, Jesus tells us to ask for anything in His name in the context of doing greater works. You know what kind of works Jesus did, right? He gave of Himself. A God who washes feet, who gives of His own life for the life of others. So if we're going to do greater works, what we're really asking for is sometimes going to lead us to suffering. It's sometimes going to lead us to great hardship. And that's where we need that comforter, that with fortitude spirit to help us through. James chapter 4 says, you do not have because you do not ask. Right? Seems like a license to just ask for that Mercedes or whatever car you want. You do not ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. You ask on wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. And, and here's the great divide. So Jesus is saying, ask anything in my name in the context of service, of doing the kinds of works that he did. 
You never see Jesus rolling in the nicest camel or anything like that. Right? I mean, he's, he's pretty homeless. Not there's anything wrong with nice cars. Anyway. So asking for anything in Jesus' name is not a proof text for health and wealth. It's a call to engage in the sacrificial work of Jesus. Second, the second way asking for anything in Jesus' name that's been abused is making it out to be some kind of magical mantra. There are people who believe that if you pray, you have to add in Jesus' name on the end of that prayer or else it doesn't count. Okay? Um, it's not wrong to end your prayers in Jesus' name. I Actually, I'm kind of in the habit of doing that quite a bit. Uh, it's not wrong to do it. Just know why you're doing it. And here's why. In the ancient world, a person's name represented their character, their very essence, their very being. So oftentimes, even in our world, the president or other leaders will send ambassadors in their name. They'll give that ambassador authority to make foreign policy decisions in their name, in their authority. Sheriffs are enacted or elected, but then they hire deputies who function under their name. So much more than being just like a magical statement, Jesus is inviting us as priests to pray in His name with authority, with His access to the Father. So when we pray to, to the Father, we're deputies of Jesus, right? That's heavy. And that's a great honor to pray in Jesus' name. In fact, if you want to put all of this into practice, consider coming to the Kingdom Service Planning Gathering tomorrow night. Because we're going to ask the Spirit to guide us toward the ways that Jesus would have us use our finances, our talents, our energy as a church to do greater deeds. Jesus calls us to do greater deeds than he did. And he calls us to do it all in the spirit of love. If anyone loves me, they will keep my word. And my Father will love them, and we will come and make our home in them. First of all, notice the inclusiveness. If anyone loves me, not just Jewish men who are clean, not just Americans, not just white people, not just people in a certain socioeconomic bracket. If anyone loves me, you'll be loved by my Father. We'll come and make our abode with them. Second, notice what the statement does not say. It does not say, Earn my love by loving me. It does not say, if you don't love me, I won't love you. This statement is about our response to being loved first. Because Jesus loved us enough to go to the cross and then call us to greater deeds, we respond in thanksgiving and joy and love. What is this commandment Jesus is talking about? If you love me, you'll, be, you'll obey my commandments. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. That's not new. And the new part is that you love one another as I have loved you. And how did he love us? He laid down his life.
if you love me, you will obey my commandments. So cool. There's good news in that sentence. Did you hear it? If you love me, you will obey my commandments. That's not, uh, that's not an imperative. It's not a command. It's a promise. It's a future. If you love me, you will obey my commands. That's what Jesus said. It's not, if you love me, you'll muster up enough strength and enough courage and enough discipline to obey my commands. It's, if you love me, if you just love me, if you're just thankful for what I've done, if you just love me, you will obey these commands. Because it's not done in your strength. It's done in the power of the Spirit. It's awesome. If you love Jesus, you will keep His commandments. Listen to these words from Tim Keller. We need to repent, not only of the bad things we've done, but also for the reasons we've done all those good things, to control God and to save ourselves. How many of the things that we do for others in the church, outside the church, are really trying to check things off a list. I know you don't think that way, but but deep down, is it a response to Jesus' love? Or is it in some way hoping that we can earn His approval? Hoping that we can pay Him back? Even hoping that we can control him in some way. I've done that one. <laughs> when I get frustrated in ministry and I say, I never asked for this. Things should be going better because you called me to this. And I put these expectations on God. And when it comes down to it, sometimes I realize I'm sometimes doing good things because I expect some kind of good result. No, 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 no. We need to repent also for the reasons we've done all those good things. To control God and to save ourselves. You know, Jesus has invited us into the most rewarding, rewarding and dynamic life imaginable. Doing greater deeds than Jesus. You ever read his stuff? He's done some amazing stuff. giving us the Holy Spirit, God's very presence and power. And I, I hope you're encouraged by that. I hope it makes you want to fly out of these seats, figure out how we as a church can love people in Jesus' name better, how um, we can respond to Jesus' love as individuals. I hope all those things are true. But frankly... I imagine if you're anything like me, there's still part of you that is struggling with, do I really love Jesus? Am I really... Do I really get that I'm forgiven? Because we've got to come face to face with that. That we're deeply lost. And our God died for us. And it's a response of joy to that the one fact, nothing more than that, that sends us out to be the church. Let's pray.